0: Amen. Please rise for the reading of Scripture, which today comes from the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me for i am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god but by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace toward me was not in vain on the contrary I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, Not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When all things are subjected to him then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that god may be all in all the reading of god's word thanks you may be seated
1: thank you so much paul let us pray as we go into god's word father we thank you For your word, that it is alive and active, able to shape, able to create, able to do all that it accomplishes. We thank you so much, Father, and we pray that these words would be written on our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now I'm aware that it is Christmas and not Easter, but this is what's been on my mind, and so here we are in 1 Corinthians 15, um, and today I'd love to take you on a bit of a journey, into a little bit into my story, and a little bit to just how I think about things and what it means to be a Christian. Now some of you know that I didn't grow up in a Christian home, that I, I, I wasn't a Christian um, until, right as of, until right about when I started college, uh, and I didn't know anything about the Bible for you know, most of that time. And I wasn't a bad kid or anything, but when people went to their youth groups on, um, you know, Wednesday nights and the pastor said, you know, go to have courage and go to school and share the gospel with a lost non-believer, Thursday mornings in choir class, I would often get a conversation because most, most people didn't know an atheist, but I was. I said it, you know, I talked about it in class. Uh, and so, but that doesn't mean like I was a bad kid and, and I seemed really happy to most people. But in reality. I was always, from middle school, thinking about death, my death, uh, the death of my friends and family, and everything I loved, and even the death of the universe as the suns and all the the stars eventually run out of their non-infinite energy, and I hated it. But I would not be a coward, and I would not be a fool, and that's what I thought Christians were. I thought they were cowards and fools because they were afraid of dying and they were afraid of the truth. And because of this, they invented a God out of fear to make living more bearable. But I said, I would never do this. I would never lie to myself. I would rather be sad forever than be a coward. My conclusion then as a ninth grader was to have as much fun as possible because we're all going to die anyways. And so I decided to drown my sorrows and my depression with fun and endless distractions. But in my darkest hour, in my deepest sufferings, which sounds very dramatic, because it was, because I was 18, I thought a lot about suicide. And then for some reason, for the first time in my life that I remember, I prayed. And in the middle of the night, the thing that I prayed for happened, and it freaked me out. It freaked me out a lot, actually, like really bad, freaked me out because I had this idea, wait, have you been listening to me forever? Um, And so I had this idea my last half of my senior year of high school that I would try to see if Christianity was true. And long story short, I ended up studying uh, and spending most of my time thinking about the resurrection because I agreed with Paul that if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then everything about Christianity was a sham. I thought he was right. C.S. Lewis said Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or he was Lord, and he has not allowed you to come to any other conclusion. He cannot be a good moral teacher. He is either the God of the universe or a liar worse than the worst devils. And so that's where I spent my time, studying the resurrection and asking, how do you even know what happened 2,000 years ago in the time before video cameras and instant news? In the end, I decided that the resurrection was true but I don't think I was a Christian yet. As I, you know, decide, as I was entering into college, I picked up the Bible for the first time in my life, and I read Matthew. And then I read the book of Revelation, which was a huge mistake. Uh, and then went back to the safe, you know, the safe books, and I read Mark. And by the time I got to Luke, I felt like I understood what Jesus was saying. And He was saying that I am the Lord. I am Lord. But not a bad Lord like our earthly Lord's. He doesn't say, go and die for me and give you my things and give and give me your things. Jesus laid down his life for his people and he gave us completely his blessings and his things. And I said, you are my Lord. And the resurrection was key to that. And the resurrection has been on my mind much again lately, as it almost always is. And I found myself thinking a lot about this chapter, which is our text today where the resurrection is placed as the key event of all of human history. It rewrites all reality. The reality that to the church must now become the thing that shapes us and guides us. It is the victory of all victories. The resurrection power of Christ is ours by faith, and that power is now a part of, the very, a part of our DNA. And so it should be. And so we're going to do a little bit of theology today. And that is because, just like in Corinth, wrong ideas and misunderstandings of the resurrection deeply shaped how the people lived and how they saw God in their lives. And so Paul taught them about the resurrection that it might reshape their entire lives. And my hope today is that it might do the same for us, that it might renew our hope and give us and renew our strength and give us such great love and motivation to serve Jesus all the morning. And so we're going to see three things from our text today, which to be fair, There is so much more that can be said than the three things that we're going to talk about today. But we are going to talk about three things. And the first thing we're going to talk about is the fact of the resurrection. And the second thing we're going to talk about is the grace in the resurrection. And the third thing we're going to talk about is our possession of the resurrection. So let us start with the facts of the resurrection. Now, as I said in my story, my coming to faith, there was something that was really, really important to me and that was that the resurrection, the gospel, had to be true. It had to be. It had to be factual. And in our text today, that's the first thing that Paul says. And he says this matters. Would you look at me? Look with me and read verses again, 12 through 13. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ." has been raised from the dead. What Paul here is saying, and he'll want to say this in the next few verses, is simply amazing. He's saying if Jesus didn't rise from the dead in history, in real life, on this planet, then our whole faith is pointless. He says if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then all of our ministry and our preaching and our faith and our lives and the way we live them and our coming to church is utterly meaningless. It is vain. It is nothing. Not only that, he says, if Christ has not really been raised from the dead, then we are actually misrepresenting God. We are bearing false witness towards the God of the Bible, and we are actually his enemies. We are still in our sins, he said, and the dead are just that. They're dead. There's nothing else to them. And he ends in verse 19 by saying that we are to be pitied most amongst all men. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied most amongst all the men of this world. And this, I think, it's many things, but one of the things this is, it is a a real critique against cultural Christianity. It is a real critique against just going through the motions. It is a real critique, I think, against lukewarm faith. Like I've always just, um, you know, that mindset of I've always just been a Christian, or it feels good, or it's a good example, or my parents did it, so I did it. That doesn't make any sense. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes anything. But if he didn't, Paul is honest. Don't be a Christian. If he rose from the dead, don't be a Christian. Because it doesn't make any sense. And you know what? I am so glad that Paul says this. I am so glad that Paul says this because I have these concerns. I have doubts. There are times when I think this is too costly. This is too hard. I don't want to do this. And it's really important to me that God and Paul knows that we have these doubts. But also that he's honest. And he says, I agree. If it isn't real, you should walk away. But here's the thing. It is real. Jesus really did rise from the dead. He says in verse three, I delivered to you of the most important thing, that which I also have received, that Christ Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, according to God's plan. The Bible teaches from beginning to end that it was always moving towards Christ and that on the third day he rose from the dead also according to the scriptures. And then he was seen by many people most of whom, he says, are still alive today. And what he's saying there is, if you don't believe me, go and talk to them. That's what he's doing. He's saying there's eyewitnesses to this. I'm not making this up. Which is actually how you knew things in history, right? Like you were like, we didn't have video cameras, so you have to go ask him. What did you see, right? And so he says he appeared to lots of people, Peter, and then the 12, and over 500 people at once. And he's saying, go talk to them. And then he appeared to the other apostles and, last of all, to me. It makes me think about doubting Thomas in the Gospels and how the fact that he is all of us. Because he is rational. He says, you know what? I'll never believe Jesus has raised from the dead because people don't raise from the dead. <laughs> I'll never believe it unless I can see it with my own eyes and touch it with my own, fi- in my own fingers. And, of course, Jesus appears. And Jesus and, and Thomas do just that. And that story is written in the Scriptures for us to know that it was just as unbelievable to them as it is to us. And he tells us that story so that we know this is what they did. And Jesus says, Blessed are all of you who believe in Jesus but who don't get to touch and do not get to see. But you believe because this is God's Word and because of the testimony of those who saw what they saw. And so what Paul here is doing is he is making a historical case that Christ really did die for the sins of His people. And on the third day, He really did rise from the dead. And it is vitally important that this be seen as true, as a fact, as something that happened on this planet on a day just like any other day. Therefore, there can be no easy believism amongst the church. It is not a nice example. It is not a sweet sentiment. The Bible says it matters that it really happened. And for me, there are other things worth noting as well as I thought about this and as I studied these things that feels important to say that we also might have our faith increased. The first of these is that the Bible presents facts surrounding uh, the resurrection that don't make sense if you're just trying to make it up. For instance, we see that the chief authors, the writers of the Bible, the spreaders of the message of the gospel, are presented in these stories as fools and people who don't get it. But if you're inventing a religion, you don't need to put that in there. In fact, it actually is hurtful to your own case to put that you're in there. Like, you could just not put it. But they put it in there. And why do they put it in there? Because they're not trying to glorify themselves. They're trying to tell you, this is what we saw, which is exactly what the Gospels are. If you were trying to start a religion, you wouldn't put the chief messengers, a.k.a. yourself, as foolish, unless that really was the way it was. You also wouldn't have the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection be women, which is what the Gospels say. For as the Jewish saying goes, a woman's testimony is less than even a dog's in court. And yet, it's Jesus who first raises from the dead and the first people to see him and proclaim him and his chief witnesses are women. The only reason you would put that in the story of the Gospels is because it's true. Because to put those things in there is how you de-invent a religion, not try and start one. (laughs) I've also heard it said by people that people didn't know a lot what we know about science and about, you know, all the things we've learned about science. You know, everybody back in the day, they all just believed in the supernatural and life after death and people coming back to life. But as N.T. Wright says, the reason, in fact, that they crucified Jesus was because they very well knew that dead people stay dead. He says, we moderns are not the first people to discover that dead people stay dead. In fact, that is why they killed Jesus. And in fact, every person who's ever lived knows that dead people stay dead. We moderns are not the first to know this. But even to Jewish people, they disbelieved that there would ever be a resurrection in, in the middle of human history at the time. What changed their minds? It was Jesus rising from the dead. The idea, that God would, that the idea that God could ever become man was so blasphemous, and yet literally overnight you have hundreds of people saying that Jesus was the Son of God. Indeed, He was God, as Doubting Thomas says. My Lord, my God. Why would people say this literally overnight? It's because Jesus rose from the dead. And though they didn't believe it right away either, the facts changed their mind. And lastly, the last thing I'll say, and maybe most importantly to me, Blaise Pascal, the mathematician and theologian, said, I always believe those eyewitnesses who get their throats slit. Almost all of the apostles died for their faith. They died to share this good news, that the God-man had been slain, but death was defeated in his, and it could not hold him, for he rose from the dead, and everything has changed. Now if you're doing if you're inventing a religion for your own glory or for money or for whatever it is, you don't get killed for it. That defeats the purpose of what you're trying to do. How can you enjoy your wealth if you're dead? But they did not forsake their message. They went to the grave with it, knowing that not only had Jesus risen from the dead, but they themselves would be raised. Now why does this matter? Why am I talking about this at all? Why does it matter that this is a historical event? Paul says, in verses 1 and 2, I say all of this so that you may hold fast to this word, that you may hold on to this news more strong and deeper than ever before. I say this to you so that you might put a death grip of your faith and your heart around the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead. I want you to cling to it. I want you to build your life around it. I want you to hope onto it with dear life and stand on it with all your weight. Paul says this not only to increase our faith, but to make the resurrection of Jesus the very focal point of our entire existence. Like the sun and the planets that revolve around it, we the church must revolve around The truths of the gospel and nothing is more sacred and beautiful and wonderful than the good news that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and death has been destroyed once and for all and so the first thing that Paul says here is that the resurrection is a fact but the second thing he says here is that the grace of God is found in the resurrection if you would look at with me at verses 8 through 10 I'm going to read them Paul says last of all Now, I want to spend a few minutes here talking about grace because I think if you ask a hundred different Christians what is grace, you're probably going to get about a hundred different answers. And this feels sometimes like Christianese to me, like it's just things we say. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about how the resurrection is grace, and how we see grace working in the resurrection. Now, a man named John Barclay, who is a New Testament professor in England and who trained many of my seminary professors got very frustrated about Bible debates between Bible scholars and decided, you know what, I'm going to study the word grace. And so he read every single document ever written between um, 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. from Jewish, Roman, and Greek documents that we have. He read them all, which is crazy. Um, And he paid very close attention to every time they used the word grace, and he marked what they meant by it. And what he found was very, very helpful— he found that different people use the word in different ways at different times. And it had much and it had more than even one meaning. It very simply means gift, but there's different types of gifts, and people use gifts in different ways. Uh, And this is actually good news. And also, it's very, very normal, for language is always changing and always fluid. Uh, Just like when I say, you know, this bench is very cool, you know because I'm touching this bench that I mean it's cold to the touch. But if I say Jerry is very cool, you know that what I mean is he's really awesome. He's cool, hip, fun, uh, not cool to the touch, a great dancer. Jerry's a lot of things, a great guitar player. He is, in fact, very, very cool. So grace also can mean different things. There you go, Jerry. (laughs) Uh, Grace can mean many different things, uh, or a few different things. um, And I want to show you what Paul means here when he uses the word grace. Paul says that by the grace of God, he is what he is. But before the resurrected of Christ appeared to him, he was the least of these, unworthy to be called an apostle because he was a persecutor and he killed Christians. He persecuted the church. And what he means here by this grace is this, that it is not equal. It is not an equal gift exchanged amongst fellow worthy peers. God is awesome and he is good and he is amazing, and he gives good gifts, and he gives them to unworthy people. A good man gives good gifts to other worthy people, and gifts he finds worthy. That's human nature, but only a great man gives his good gifts, even to the unworthy. Christ alone is worthy, and yet in him we have found forgiveness, adoption, love, affection, eternal life, and that has been given, the Bible says, to sinners. Let me remind you of how opposite this is to human nature. The greatest American hero, Santa Claus, let me remind you, gives coal to the naughty, but gives presents to the good. Even he gives gifts to those who are worthy. But we also don't want to give our money to bad people. We don't want to give our honor or even, if we're honest, there are people who could walk into our churches that we would immediately look upon and decide are unworthy just by how they look or how they dress or how they talk. We don't want to give our money to these things. We don't want to give our honor to these things because they aren't worthy. But the gospel is just that. That the treasures of heaven were given to sinners. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God gives grace to the unworthy and because he gives his gifts to the unworthy, he alone is great because he alone is worthy. And so that's partly of what he's meaning here. But the second thing grace means here is that it is super abundant, meaning it is extreme. It is lavish. It is in in excess. It's excellent. It's long lasting. It's perfect. You can give a really, really perfect gift, but God's gift is super abundant. It's super perfect. It's super eternal. He died for our sins and gave us eternal life. He gave us all the heavenly blessings and there is no greater conceivable gift. And it transformed Paul and made him what he is. I am what I am because Christ rose from the dead and made me his child. It is an infinite gift. There is nothing you could conceive that could ever be greater than the gifts of heaven. And Paul says in this world sin abounded but grace superabounded." It was so infinite, so powerful, that it literally drove back sin and death as far as the the curse was found. And again, the gifts of heaven, the treasures of heaven, were given to the unworthy, not the worthy. But last, he says, but the grace of God was not in vain, for it accomplished what it was given for. It It was not I that was working, but grace was working in me. In other words, it's effective. The gift accomplished what it was meant to do. Jesus said, you don't give a, you know, if a child asks for a bread and you give him a gift of a serpent. That's not good. That's not a good father. God gives the perfect gift because it accomplishes what the gift was intended to be. It was powerful that it changed Paul. <laughs> it was so powerful that it changed Paul completely. It accomplished the reason why God had given him this gift. The grace was not in vain. He said, I worked harder than all the rest. So it was not me. It was the grace of God working in me. You see, in Jewish and Greek culture, it was often said that the greatest gifts one could ever be given was the birth of a child and the saving of someone's life. Because what that does is that that gift enables everything that comes afterwards They make it better and allow everything that ever happens after to happen. So it is a good gift because it accomplishes something wonderful. And Paul says that the God's grace in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of him taking on our sins and giving us his righteousness, are the greatest gifts that have ever happened to human beings. Paul says we are now family and not enemies. We now have a new nature that enjoys, obeys, loves, and we are more and more like Christ every day as this grace continues to work in our hearts. And the greatest gifts in the ancient world were life and having one's life saved. And Paul says God has both created us and given us life, but he has also saved us from death and sin and gives us both life forever and life to the full. And what's fascinating then, and this is true to Paul, The cross, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus received by faith is the grace of all grace. It is the gift of all gifts. It is the treasure from heaven. It is the greatest gift ever conceived. It is powerful in that it breaks chains of sin and and kills death. It transforms weak and unworthy vessels into children of God. It sets us free. It makes us new. But also it makes us want to do likewise. It makes us want to live a life worthy of the gift. To lay our lives down upon the feet, at the feet of God. But it's given to, not to the worthy, but to the unworthy. To sinners, to the selfish, to the greedy, to the arrogant, to murderers, adulterers, and thieves. Only Christ alone is worthy, and yet he laid all of his life down and gave us the greatest gift of all. And the response to God's grace is exactly what Paul does with his life. It's service, it's honor, it's praise, it's robust worship and thought and deed. And that is why we must see in the resurrection of Jesus the awesome, the unfair, and yet powerful gift of God to the people of God the resurrection and all that comes with it. And so we've seen the fact of the resurrection, we've seen the grace of God in the resurrection, but lastly, I want to show you that Christ's resurrection is indeed our resurrection. Now, there are two images that I want to zero in on in this chapter. And the first is in um, verse 20. Would you look at with me at verse 20? Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul says, indeed, Christ has really resurrected from the dead, and that he is the firstfruits of the resurrection. Now, what is that? What is a firstfruits? Firstfruits is farming language. Um, If you were a farmer and you grew all these crops, what you might do, what you should probably do, uh, is you should check your crops. You, you take a small section and you check them a bit early. And what this will do is it will show you, give you a very accurate picture of what all the rest of the crops are probably going to turn out like, right? And so if you want to see what the crops are, you check the first fruits. And what that will do is it will show you the nature and the quality that will come from the rest. And so Paul says that in Christ's resurrection, that he is the first fruits of all of those who will rise from the dead that he will come back, and then all those who belong to him will arise again. And what's awesome is that if we want to know what our resurrection will be like, we are told to look at, to Jesus, for he is the first fruits. He is the firstfruits of our future resurrection. He shows us that not only we will rise in his own resurrection, but also what our resurrection will be like. To see our future, we are told to look to Christ, our first fruit. But the second image we see in this chapter uh, is in verses 53 to 57, which we did not read at the beginning, but we're going to read now. Paul says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to the pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that when Christ returns, we shall all be changed. That, whence, that which once decayed, our bodies will not any longer, for we will put on immortality. And then will come to pass one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, Death is swallowed up in victory. Its power and sting are no more. Its victory is no more. Death has always, to anybody who's lost anybody, death seems to have won. But there is a moment when death will be defeated, which has already begun in Christ Jesus. And now death does not dominate us anymore. And I love the imagery and the words of victory. It makes me think first of King David in his fight against Goliath. You see, we all read that story, right? And we think, man, I got to be like David. I got to try harder, pray more, and if I do all these things and if I'm really holy and all that stuff, I'll be, a, I'll be able to beat no matter what enemy ever comes to me. But here's the thing. That's not the point of the story of King David because we aren't kings and we aren't Davids. We're the people, if it were anybody in the story, we're the people cowering in fear with no ability whatsoever to beat a giant. And we are terrified and alone, and praying that God might send a hero to vanquish this person that would vanquish us. The story of David and Goliath teaches us to long for a hero. To long for a hero, a king, in fact, who would rise up and defeat the enemies of his people. And that's exactly what David does. But here's the thing. When David defeats Goliath, at that exact moment, all the victories and blessings of David's victory are immediately given to his people. They charge across the river, and they're free, and they're no longer, you know, a slave to to Goliath. But even more so, that's exactly what King Jesus has done for us. Paul says the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law, and that the law demands death for sin. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory. And that victory is the resurrection and eternal life through Jesus Christ. And he says, given. And don't miss that grace word there, right? The victory is given to us by grace. That we did not live to finger, the victory of Christ has been given to us. And here's what I want you to see. In both of these sections of the first fruits, and as Christ the victor, he makes a very key and central point. And that is, Christ is the first fruits of your resurrection. It's not just some idea. It's not some out there thing. It is our resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was not just for himself, it was for the people of God. The, the victory that Christ has won by paying for sin and rising from the dead and defeating those things is your victory. All the blessings of the resurrection and eternal life are ours. That's real. Christ died for our sins according to the plan of God given to us in the Scriptures. He was buried, but then He rose again, and that resurrection was not for Him alone, but for us. He has given us this amazing grace, the gift of all gifts. The resurrection is ours, that His resurrection really happened, that it is our future. And because of that, because that's true, it has changed everything. It has to be the driving force of our lives and the chief reality as we walk day by day. The victory over sin and death has already been won. The victory has already been given to you. And that same power that rose Christ from the dead is coursing through our veins. And the grace of God is working in us day by day, causing us to die to sin and live more and more unto righteousness though we did not deserve it. Though we are unworthy and still are, though we have all sinned and still sinned, God has lavished us with a gift beyond our wildest dreams. And that gift is both unfair, but it is powerful and it is effective. And it has to be the thing that is the most true about our lives and our future. That is the road we must walk. That is what we are called to. And anything else makes no sense. And Paul ends the magnum opus on this letter, on this chapter, with his main point. And don't, don't miss this. And people miss this. The whole reason he writes this chapter, he says, is then in verse 58, he says, therefore, why have I told you all these things? Why am I pressing so hard into this? He says this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain why am I telling you this? What's the point? Why, why does the resurrection matter? People used to say to C.S. Lewis, people are so heavenly-minded so heavenly that you are of no earthly good. And, Paul, and C.S. Lewis said, that is untrue. It is those who are of the most heavenly-minded are of the most earthly good. I'm telling you this, church, because I want you to be steadfast. I want you to be grounded in the Gospel. I want your allegiance and obedience to be to nothing else, to no one else. I want you to be immovable, like a giant boulder that nothing can move, like the sword and the stone in King Arthur's story that no one can take out. I want you to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. I want that's where to be your hope to be. And all your hope should be rested upon Him. And He says, I want this grace, this gift, to abound in you and to cause you to live your life with joy and service to the Lord. Let us see all our lives, our work, our parenting, our jobs, our relationships, our choices, all of our work as a life of worship and gratitude to to the greatest truth that's ever been told. And may we praise God forever and ever, knowing that our labor is not in vain. You see, that's the thing that I thought about my life before I became a Christian, is why am I doing anything? It's all in vain. I'm going to die. And that's true if there is, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. But your life is not in vain. And what you do is not in vain. And there is nothing in vain about you because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And that resurrection is yours. That's our future. If anyone who has lost anything or anyone, that is the greatest news. For I will see them again. Let's not forget the words of C.S. Lewis. He said, there are no ordinary people in this world, not one. He says, for you have never met a mere mortal. You've never met somebody that is not going to live forever. Nations and cultures and governments and civilizations, and these are what are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, for we will live forever. But it is the mortals whom we joke with, with whom we work, with whom we marry and give birth to, with whom we snub and with whom we exploit immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. Therefore, let us serve and love with all sincerity and grace our world and the people in it, for Christ has died and Christ has risen again, not for the worthy, but for the unworthy, for sinners. And let us give this world this great news and proclaim to them the great gift that is theirs by faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this truth. May you write it upon our hearts forever. And may, Lord, we have hope in you forever. And may, Lord, those who are weary and laden and sick and afraid, Father, may you strengthen them with your word. And may, Lord, as we come to this table, as we eat our bread and drink this cup, proclaim the death, but also the resurrection and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, make this as real as anything that we may be faithful forever. We love you and we pray all this in your name. Amen.